Produced in association with KPMG Australia, this is What Happens Next with Bernard Salt. Hello, I'm Bernard Salt. On this edition of the program, as we herald in the Lunar New Year, we discuss the new wave of Chinese entrepreneurs. I would say they're very, very young. 45% of them are still in their 20s and 30s. They are very highly educated. Three quarters of them all have some form of higher education degrees in Australia. And we find out what makes family businesses so unique. During a time of crisis, family members tend to come together and do whatever it takes to protect the family legacy, which the business represents. And families tend to have a a much more united front working towards that common purpose. And I think that makes their business uh, more resilient and stronger and better able to face situations such as COVID. That's all coming up on the program when we discover what happens next. Well, it's Chinese New Year and celebrations are taking place across the country to welcome in the Year of the Ox. During this 16-day festival period, we thought it would be a good idea to look at the new wave of Chinese entrepreneurs in Australia. A recent report by KPMG shows Chinese-Australian entrepreneurs start companies at a young age and are highly likely to have been educated at Australian universities and act as a bridge between the Australian and Chinese economies. To look at this more closely, I spoke to Helen Z. Dent, partner in charge, China Business Practice, KPMG, and Livia Wong, Chief Brand Officer, Access Corporate Group. Livia Wong, Helen Zident, welcome to the program. Hello, Bernard. Hi, Bernard. Helen, if I could start with you, you've done some research into understanding Chinese entrepreneurs and family businesses operating in Australia. Mm-hmm. What are the key characteristics that they have? Mm. We actually have found some very striking characteristics from those Chinese Australia entrepreneurs. First of all, I would say they're very, very young. We found through our surveys with 100 entrepreneurs that 45% of them are still in their 20s and 30s, and another 20% of them are in their 40s. And the founders started their business at the average age of only 27 years old, I think. I didn't expect to meet so many very, very young entrepreneurs. And secondly, I would say that they are very highly educated, very different to my impression of the first Chinese migrants, for instance, in the 90s, many of whom came to Australia for a short language course, and then they had to start to find a part-time job to support themselves. Those entrepreneurs that we surveyed, these three quarters of them all have some form of higher education degrees. And thirdly, I would say they uh, created very high growth businesses. When they started, most of them had very limited capital. But after five to 10 years of development, 68% of them are classified as high growth entrepreneurs, which have an annual growth rate above 20%. 
and also many of them, over 60% are medium-sized businesses in Australian terms, which is a business employee of around 20 to 190 staff. And 19% of them have annual revenue over 50 million. We found these businesses are very innovative as well. Um, a large number of them actually bringing technologies from China to their business operations or customers uh, in Australia, which were not previously available here. And lastly, I would say those entrepreneurs are very ambitious. The ones that we have met, 90% of them have planned to grow through introducing new products and services or expanding into new markets. So I would say these are the key characteristics that we found through serving these entrepreneurs. Livia, as a successful business operator, which straddles both Australia and China, what are the key business learnings you've picked up along the way? When we are looking at the business opportunities between different countries, that means we don't actually have very clear boundaries. That's actually the opportunities through um, the operation process. That means different languages, different cultures, different backgrounds, different exposure. A lot of this type of the environment give a lot of business opportunities to be able to do something very different. So I will say the first learnings I learned is the opportunities don't come along during those stable times. It's actually come through with those opportunities within the boundary or between the boundaries. So I think the connections between China and Australia is one of that. What would you say are the unique business challenges that you've faced? We do find the talents Acquisition is one of the biggest challenges for us because you do need to have those talents to be able to understand both the countries. Now, even China and Australia is pretty much global, speak different languages and adapt to different cultures. And the team is one of the things I found the most challenging so far. And what business strategies have you identified as being critical to success? I do think we need to do those are things we really love and passionate about and to make sure we plan for long term, not a short term plan. As long as we love it and we plan for long term, success is easier to identify. Helen, what sectors are you seeing Chinese entrepreneurs and businesses operate in? Um, we had no idea what to expect before the survey. And then after that, we were surprised how diversified the entrepreneurs are operating in. Around 45% are in the service industry. These are sectors like uh, tourism, property, migration services, asset and wealth management, and lots of uh, in professional services like legal accounting. And we found quite a lot in healthcare medium as well. The remaining 45% are across like a, a real estate, agricultural business, manufacturing is another interesting space that we found quite a few entrepreneurs are working in. Um, many of them are in import and export business, wholesale, retail and mining industries. We also find around 5% of the entrepreneurs are working in high tech space, 
um, such as um, online game development, blockchain applications, and fintech as well. And how do these businesses differ from other SMEs? Um, I think, first of all, uh, they all have a strength uh, around their cross-border knowledge. They, those entrepreneurs benefited from China's growth, and they also have knowledge about Australia, therefore in a very unique position to identify new opportunities in both countries. They seem to be able to sell Australian products and services better than other SMEs to the Chinese market. And also many of them have branch or subsidiary companies in China and in many other countries, which I don't think many other SMEs do. Those entrepreneurs, many of them have operations in the US, Canada, UK, and the other Asian Pacific countries in addition to China. Secondly, I would say those Chinese entrepreneurs seem to have a very strong growth mindset. Um, around three quarters of them want to attract equity investors into their business or investing into other businesses. And also around half, uh, 50% of them are very open mind to the idea of a potential IPO in Australia or another stock exchange um, um, outside of Australia. Um, thirdly, I would say they um, do not see themselves as a family business, which surprised me throughout the survey. Um, those Chinese-Australian entrepreneurs do not expect to hand on the business to their family members. Or actually, we found very few numbers of them even employ family members in their business. I think around only 14% out of the 100 said they would hope their children would consider taking over the business in the future. But even in that kind of scenario, many of them still prefer to hire a full-time CEO to run the organization alongside their children. So it, it surprised me that many of those entrepreneurs do not see themselves as a family business. They actually wanted to cooperate their business. Livia, where do you see the opportunities for growth in your business? The whole world is changing because of the COVID. So it's a restriction on travel, it's a restriction on moving people around. However, if we see the opportunities, the whole retailer is changing the way doing business. Brands are finding new ways to engage with their consumers. We do think the business like us, as in the industry of FMCG, in the industry of retailer, we do have the chance and opportunity to find a new way to do business. So in terms of opportunities, really back to us, what can we create a unique business opportunities for the whole world to engage with their consumers uh, differently? Livia and Helen, thanks for helping us discover what happens next. family businesses are central to the Australian business landscape, accounting for 70% of Australian businesses across the country. They report an average turnover of $12 million annually, and they have around 37 employees.
To discuss this critical sector in more detail, I spoke to Robin Langsford, partner in charge, family and private clients, KPMG. Robin Langsford, welcome to the program. Thank you, Bernard. Good to be here. Robin, you do a lot of work with family businesses. How do they differ from other businesses? The key and obvious difference with family businesses and other businesses stems from the the definition of a family business, which is a business that is owned or controlled by a family as opposed to a broader set of stakeholders. And that has flow-on consequences for family businesses facing a unique set of advantages and challenges stemming from the overlap of being a family that is together in business. So practically speaking, that means that family businesses, by their nature, mix families' personal agendas and the business agendas together. How has the pandemic affected this sector of business? Yeah, that's a really good question. And family businesses, by and large, in Australia tend to predominate in consumer-facing sectors, such as um, retail, consumer goods, and they tend to be less prominent in infrastructure-intensive businesses, um, utilities and finance. Depending on the kinds of retail and the consumer goods that they sold and how digitised family businesses' channels to market were, there were differing results. So a couple of examples, take a business such as um, furniture retailer Nick Scarley, which still has a substantial family ownership. When COVID started, they genuinely thought that they were going to face a tough time. And we've all read in recent days how um, they therefore applied for government stimulus at the time. And yet nine months later, they had experienced nearly double profits. In contrast, we saw a lot of other family businesses really struggling, particularly those in the hospitality and the retail sector who were unable to diversify. They were the ones that really suffered. So retail, retail businesses that were able to, uh, I guess, have digitised routes to market, uh, they did quite well. And um, you would have seen a lot of businesses related to pet ownership. They also flourished in COVID. I, I don't think as many Australians have ever owned dogs before. So that's another sector that did really well. There are a lot of benefits of the family business structure. Are these businesses aware of the benefits and do they capitalise on this? Yeah, I think family businesses are aware of the unique sets of advantages that come from being a family in business together, they are, for example, able to take a longer-term view, gives them added resilience in times such as COVID. So um, during a time of crisis, family members tend to come together and do whatever it takes to protect the family legacy, which the business represents. And families tend to have a, a much more united front working towards that common purpose. And I think that makes their business more resilient and stronger and better able to face situations such as COVID. And I think also the absence of having to to meet things like continuous disclosure rules that listed entities have to allow family businesses to respond with a lot more agility and and a lot more freedom in the kinds of investment decisions they're making and less short-term thinking. So that's definitely one of the key advantages. The other key advantage would be the family being very aligned on its visions and values. The employees of that family business are often seen as extended family, even though they're not genetically part of the family, they're still seen as part of a a huge family group. And so the well-being and emotional well-being of of employees is often a lot higher. And that's one of the things that I I love about working with family businesses, that the loyalty and the commitment they get from their employees, I think is really special. What are the specific issues that these types of businesses need to be aware of? 
I think the specific types of issues tend to centre around needing to make sure that you consider the needs and wants of the family in parallel with the needs and wants of the businesses. And the typical way of addressing that is through appropriate governance structures. Uh, and for each family, that will look slightly different. An example would be um, families, for example, might want to pull out a whole lot of um, liquidity from a business to fund, I don't know, holiday houses, purchasing houses for the next generation and things like that, whereas the family members that are in the business might want to retain that liquidity for working capital purposes and expansion of the business. And so you can see how situations like that and topics like that can lead to conflict. And so having a, a governance structure that gives you a framework and a mechanism to cope with those types of decisions is very important. What are the typical traits that you see in successful family businesses? So in 2018, KPMG did a, a family business survey that focused a lot on communication and I think families that get stifled by emotional conflict that often means that not only the family disintegrates but the business can as well. So successful families have that high level of, you know, socio-emotional wealth that they can draw on and good communication skills. And um, yeah, that's probably one of the key characteristics. I think also having an entrepreneurial vision is very important. So quite often we will see that the founder of a family business is, a, is an amazing entrepreneur with, um, you know, has a great idea, great courage to, to get it off the ground and running. But as the business is passed to the next generation, there, there may not necessarily be the same entrepreneurial flair. And you do need that entrepreneurial flair in each generation of business leaders to cope with the disruption and the, you know, the inevitable change that all businesses face these days. And so that, that's another key factor that we do see in successful family businesses. Looking at succession planning, obviously there are a lot of nuances around this in family businesses. What's your advice in terms of securing the future of the business in a successful way? Well, succession planning is, is certainly an issue for family businesses. There's a, there's a myriad of practical... Uh, financial and emotional issues that need to be addressed in any family, which which can be very confronting and potentially raise unresolved issues within the family and the business. And succession planning really requires uh, patience and commitment from all family members. And as well as raising sensitive issues about the future of the business, it can also um, lead to, I guess, um, skeletons coming out of the closet in terms of historical relationships between family members uh, and there can also obviously be potential tax consequences as well on the, on the practical side. So while it's a difficult exercise to undertake, the consequences of not having a succession plan in place can be really damaging to both the family and the business. So my advice to most families is start the conversation. It won't happen overnight but it's a bit like saying that, you know, the journey of a thousand steps begins with the first step. It's a good journey to start. That's great advice. Robin Langsford, thanks for helping us discover what happens next. Thanks, Bernard. Hello, I'm Whitney Fitzsimmons, the executive producer of What Happens Next. And now it's that time in the program for something a little bit different where we turn the tables and I get to interview our host and resident demographer, Bernard Salt. Hey, Bernard. Hi, Brittany. 
I thought it was really interesting that Helen said many new Chinese entrepreneurs were not planning on handing down their businesses to their kids. Did you think that was interesting too? I most certainly did. I picked up on that. Uh, So many of these businesses are run by effectively millennials, people in their 20s and 30s. And I have to say, it seems such a long time ago for me, but in your 20s and 30s, you don't think about um, generational change. You think about continuing to build that business. I wonder whether, in fact, over the next 10 or even 20 years, that those Chinese entrepreneurs might change their thinking. But I think The reason is predominantly because they're so young at the moment. I think there is a natural um, inclination for business people who who start a business or particularly family businesses to want to pass it on to their kids. But you kind of don't think of that at 28 or 29 when you're just starting something. There's so much more to do in your life. And so um, passing it on to the kids is, uh, is, is secondary. But it's certainly one to watch over the next decade or so. And on the family business topic, it's interesting that um, family businesses are so critical to the Australian business environment. No doubt about that. The key figure there that was cited from the KPMG survey, I think, was that 70% of businesses. So there's roughly about two and a half million businesses uh, in Australia. So 70%, you can work out the proportion, are in fact uh, family businesses. A lot of those would be sole traders. But again, you can see that this is very much the uh, the broad base of the business pyramid in uh, Australia. Family businesses really are or do form the bedrock of uh, of Australian business. And when you look at those numbers, the turnover, the number of employees, uh, this is absolutely critical to business success and absolutely critical to this idea of rebuilding a better Australia as we come out of the pandemic. It's got to start with, it's got to connect with uh, family businesses. They have to work and then it flows, it's trickle up. It, fl- it flows on from there, in fact. All right, well, that's all for the program. Thank you, Bernard. Thank you, Whitney. And thank you for listening to What Happens Next. You've been listening to What Happens Next with Bernard Salt. Produced in association with KPMG Australia. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts.